Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. Climbing Too Big to Flail was never about being on top. It's never about conquering the climb or getting to the summit. Just being in the middle of the climb was the most amazing because I feel as if I'm part of this greater piece of art. That was climber Nina Williams, and it's time for Great Adventures. Nina, thanks so much for coming on. Welcome to New York City. How's the experience been so far? Oh, the experience is great. I have been to New York City a few times now, and I love being here. I love visiting. It's got such a great vibe and energy. I got to admit, I'm not sure if I could live here full time. But <laughs> it's not for everybody. Yeah, but I do love coming here and checking everything out. So you're here in New York as part of the Real Rock film tour, and you're screening your film, The High Road, which documents you climbing the Too Big to Flail route, a route that Alex Hunold first climbed back in 2012. How long had you been chasing that route? So I started trying Too Big to Flail back in the spring of 2018. It's a 50-foot freestanding boulder in Bishop, California. Um, quite vertical and a little intimidating. Tried it on top rope, didn't do all of the moves. There were some really long reaches between some of the holds. And back then I thought, you know what? I, I wasn't even thinking about trying to take the rope away. I just was so attracted to the beauty of the boulder. I thought I want to climb on it in any way I can. <laughs> And so the first step was, okay, I'll put a top rope on it. Um, so I didn't work out the moves in that first session. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe it'll be a project, maybe not. But then I returned in the fall of 2018 and tried it again and figured out the moves, found some different feet, some different hands, and thought, oh, my gosh, this is, this is possible. Mm. So once that switch was, was flipped, uh, I returned in the spring of 2019 and really broke it down over the course of, I want to say, five or six days. I worked it and sent it, I think on the sixth day. Uh, and I had climbed it from top to bottom cleanly about five times total, five or six times total. And yeah, then I reached a point where I thought, oh, okay, the weather's good. Um, you know, I've got my, my partner James was up there with me, so I felt uh, safe and, and psyched. And I thought, all right, it's time to go for it. And what kind of climb is that? How would you classify that? Too Big to Flail is classified as a highball boulder. And I primarily am a boulderer, which means that I, you know, climb freestanding boulders without any ropes. And they're generally pretty small, um, probably like 15 feet or under. But then once we 
designate a, a climb as a high ball, then that can be anywhere from you know 15, 20, 30 feet. Uh, and then getting into the 50 foot boulders, you know, it toes the line between bouldering and free soloing, which is what Alex Honnold did on LCAV, climbing up really, really high. And I, I don't categorize myself as a free soloist necessarily because really? my rule with a high ball is that it's a high ball as long as there's crash pads underneath. And a crash pad, you know, is when in bouldering, it's, it's your safety net. It's what you fall onto. And so I always say if someone had thrown a crash pad under Honnold when he was soloing LCAP, it really would have just been the world's biggest highball. There does become a point, though, when you get to an elevation where the crash pad, you wonder the actual safety it's providing. Yeah. So at some point, for sure, the pad sort of becomes symbolic. And I get to a point in my climbing where I'm not thinking about the pad at all. So I try these high ball boulders on a rope first, and I work out all the moves. I make sure I can climb from top to bottom without falling at least two or three times. And then once I feel comfortable, I know that I have the physical ability to do that climb. And then it just becomes a matter of focusing on my mind mentally. And then I reach a point mentally where I think, okay, you know, I'm ready to take away the rope. And to some degree, I mean, I get uh, the biggest question people ask is like, oh, were you scared? You know, how do you feel when you're up there? And honestly, I don't feel anything because I've just gone through this methodical process of breaking the climb down into something that, you know, I can achieve. And uh, yeah, then I just have that confidence to build off of. What did completing the route mean to you? And do you feel like you grew as a climber? Um, I feel like I grew as a climber in the sense that Too Big to Flail was a, a fairly insecure style of climbing for me. In my past highballs or in other highballs, uh, they've always been slightly overhanging. So I've had you know real holds and feet to grab onto and pace my feet against. But Too Big to Flail, because it's almost vertical uh, and the holds are all very small and the feet are all very rounded um, to some degree you know yeah my foot could have popped off there's always that that small chance but I had to really trust myself and my mental game um, and yeah I think I grew a bit from that I climbed too big to flail again not because I wanted to overcome my fear or because you know I wanted this huge experience I really just wanted to climb it because it was visually beautiful and inspiring to me. And I had already built up this process of climbing high balls in the past. So it wasn't like I went up to flail and thought, okay, I'm gonna, you know, this is so out of my wheelhouse, I'm gonna try it. I had already had this experience um, built up beforehand. I mean, one of the great things about climbing is the puzzle, solving the puzzle of the climb. And you, you mentioned something there nice, which is, you know, it was beautiful. I wanted to climb it because it was beautiful. I wonder, Sometimes when you're on a climb like that, when there is a degree of risk, how much are you appreciating the beauty of where you are in the moment? Or is it, are you focused on the climb purely executing? Yeah. So in the moment, I'm focused purely on the climbing because I, you know, as climbers and just people in sports and life in general, we reach this flow state where we're so present in our bodies and our minds that we're actually outside of ourselves. But to some degree too, like... Climbing too big to flail was never about being on top. It's never about conquering the climb or getting to the summit. For me, just being in the middle of the climb was 
the most amazing because I feel as if I'm part of this greater piece of art. It's like I'm a part of the landscape, I'm a part of the earth in that one second or in that one moment because I feel so connected to it. And once I get on top, it's almost not a disappointment, but it's like it's over. It's like, oh, <laughs> dream is done. Mm. But for you know the five minutes that it took for me to complete that climb, I was truly a part of that landscape. And to me, that's my expression of art. It's like this living, moving, breathing act. Absolutely. How quickly do you feel the need for the next one? Mm, not too quick. Not too quickly. Because <laughs> yeah. I also understand the risks and I appreciate the danger that highballing is. Uh, I'm I'm an only child, so I'm really close with my family, and I always try and take into account, you know, what would happen if I got injured or or, or died, you know. And I I love my family, I love my friends and my partner, and uh, I want to climb my whole life. You mm. know, I want to stay healthy, and so I always take that into account um, with these with these risky climbs. You know, it's funny you said earlier I just wanted to climb it, and I remember just as a kid, and I I love climbing too, and I love as a kid just like running on rocks how early you know tell us a little bit about your story as far as you know how you came to climbing professionally as you do now yeah so as a kid you know i climbed all these trees and i loved uh where'd you grow up i i grew up in rhode island um and spent a lot of time up in new hampshire also climbing up in in the cliffs of rumney and uh but as a kid i i have these memories of climbing up into trees and really enjoying that sense of of danger while also knowing that I was safe, mm-hmm. right? So I would always like stick to the base of the of the branches as they got higher and higher. The bigger branches, yeah. yeah. The bigger branches are safe, but then they would get a little thinner and I still felt secure. You know, I wasn't falling through midair, but I also felt, oh, like I'm, this is kind of high up. Yeah, looking down. Yep, exactly. Um, and then I got into formal climbing when I was 12 years old. Uh, I started on an outdoor wall in New Hampshire. Then I joined a climbing team uh, a year afterwards, and then I got into competitions. So I split my time really between outdoor climbing and indoor climbing as I grew up. Um, so did the comp scene for a while and continued that when I moved out west to Colorado in 2010. And uh, yeah, competed for a long time up until about five years ago. And then I have focused primarily on outdoor climbing since. And how did you settle on Colorado to live and adventure in? I moved, let's see, I worked for a while at REI in, in Rhode Island. And uh, once I switched out to Colorado, I worked at Starbucks because both of those companies offered me a really flexible schedule. And I had super understanding managers who, you know, I told them what I did and they were like, oh, cool. Like, we don't really get that, but you go do your thing. Mm. So I was able to take all this time off of work and then come back to a job um, mm. once I ran out of money. So that was awesome. And it allowed me a lot of travel and, you know, the ability to tap into opportunities and resources all over the world. Uh, and then I started coaching, um, coaching a youth team in Boulder called ABC. And that helped a lot too. But then I reached a point where all I wanted to do was climb full time. And I had some sponsors at that point. So I just decided to make the cut and dive right in. What do you love about highball bouldering? Um, I love the sense of control I feel. Kind of tapping back into when I was a kid of being in this dangerous situation, but also understanding my own skill set and knowing where my limits lay as far as where to push it and where to back off. Hmm. So, you know, I'm really proud of, of the highball boulders that I've done, but I'm just as proud as the boulders that I've backed off of. 
describe one of those situations where you did back down and, and what that felt like? Um, a few of them have been mostly on climbs that I have not tried on a rope beforehand. So all of the really, really tall boulders I've done, I've done on a rope. But some of the ones where I've tried to go ground up, where I'm climbing into the unknown and I'm reaching like 20, 25 feet, uh, I'm just not willing to risk myself in that mm. way. And so I would down climb and, and take, you know, kind of a big fall, but it's mostly going into this, like, into this, again, the unknown and not willing to, to risk myself. Yeah. Where were those climbs? Uh, they were in New England. There yeah. was a few in Maine and Connecticut. And, yeah. Where do you like climbing the most? What state? Ooh, uh, I love California. I mean, the climbing out there, there's so much. There's Yosemite, there's Bishop, you know, there's just a lot of climbing. Colorado is another great place. Uh, just the quantity of climbing in Colorado, that you could throw a stone and hit like a bunch of other stone. Rocklands in South Africa is probably my favorite international destination. What is the most scenic place that you've been climbing? California, yeah. Yeah, probably California. <laughs> I just, I'm biased. I love that place. No, absolutely. I, I get it. You know, for people who want to get out there, you know, what would you recommend? I always like to tell people, you know, it's really good to learn about the background of the land that you go to visit, not just in the climbing, but the history and the culture. So um, Bishop has a very strong indigenous background, like the, the Paiute tribe live there and um, have ceremony still on that land. So it's a really sacred, special place um, for people who have been there since time immemorial. and. I've, I've always thought that sense was so cool um, that these people have such a deep connection to the land. So, you know, whenever climbers are going uh, out to these different spaces, just, you know, take some time to learn about the people and the culture that are already there because it's usually really cool. Did you explore around Bishop while you were out there doing the climb? Mm-hmm. The original name for, for that area is Payahunadu. And so um, there's so many hiking trails. And honestly, there's, there's so many like random dirt roads. You can just go and hike around many of the boulders. It's, it's really accessible. And Bishop in particular, almost some would argue too accessible because there's a lot of crowds and a lot of people. Right. Um, so, you know, going off the beaten path a little bit and finding boulders that are way out in the middle of nowhere, it's, it's worth it. You know, climbing is definitely getting a lot more attention than it used to. The films with Free Solo and the Dawn Wall, people are paying a lot more attention to climbing and getting into it. What do you recommend to people who obviously are inspired by climbing that is years and years of experience away? Well, what I do encourage is for people to ask themselves why, if you want to do a highball boulder because it's inspiring and beautiful and something internally motivated, for sure, that's something to pursue. But if it's because you want to impress your date or impress your friends or say, oh, you know, I really want to just get scared and see what happens. Yeah. Those are externally motivating factors. Hey, dudes, check this out. Yeah. Jump on a wall. Yeah. Yeah. They're ego driven mm -hmm. and that can be kind of dangerous with a risky sport like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're internally motivated, then I, I mean, with any new climber, I always recommend finding friends, like finding a community first so that you have motivation and support from other people. And then once you feel that you have that support, then go out and, you know, try it on a top rope first. Like, mm. be always be safe as possible, um, but push yourself a little bit. Like, really notice the fear that you have and embrace the fact that we all have fear and that's not something that will ever go away. But instead of overcoming our fear, we can learn to be familiar with it. Mm. And think, okay, this is how I feel in a situation that's really dangerous, but that fear is a part of me 
but it doesn't have to be all of me. Mm. And we can objectify our fear. So we identify it. We think, okay, it, what's the voice that's telling us, you know, we're too short, we're not strong enough, we're this or that, and think, okay, I, I hear this voice and I acknowledge that it's a part of me, but I'm gonna put it in the back seat and I'm going to separate myself from it because even though it's a part of me, Again, it's not all of me. What project would you say was the longest between setting the, in your mind that you wanted to do it to getting off rope? Mm, probably, uh, it's a it's a toss up between Too Big to Flail and Ambrosia, which mm-hmm. is my other high, my other tall high ball climb. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both. I I, I tried them first uh, and didn't do all of the moves, and then probably waited a year. And then tried them again, just for fun. It was like, oh, well, let's see how this climb feels again because I just, you know, I just want to see what it's like. Mm. And then, you know, the second time around, I figured something else out. And it's like, oh, okay. And then once all the moves click, it's game on, and I probably sent them each within a week. How often did you find yourself thinking about those climbs, or not at all? Would you wake up and be like, oh, I, I got to do it. I got, I got to finish that one. It's this kind of weird peripheral mindset. So mm. I, I envisioned the goal. Like I thought, oh, I want to do Ambrosia, or I want to do too, too big to flail. Then I try it and it seems a little bit out of reach and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to shelve it. You know, it's still in my mind, but I'm going to put it on the back burner and try these other things that are a little more manageable for me right now and then revisit those goals, you know, six months, a year later and see how it feels. Because when we, for me, having these big goals, if I think about them all the time, they can seem really overwhelming. And then I find I'm like, I don't know how to approach it or, or I'm focusing on something that's too hard for me in that moment. But if I take a step back and I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily giving up on these goals, but I'm just gonna try and zero in a little bit more on my skill set and improve in these smaller ways. And eventually it'll add up to that dream goal. Were you surprised that you found your way into this sport? I am not surprised that I've found my way into this type of climbing, partly because part of my personality is that I really enjoy doing things that people tell me I shouldn't do or, you know, that, you know, because I, and I think women specifically in climbing are always told, you know, oh, be safe, be cautious, uh, you know, don't do anything that can rock the boat or always look out, you know, for other people. But for me, it's like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go do these things anyways, because Mm -hmm. I I want to. And Mm -hmm. also because it's different, it's unique. I'm always looking for something that's a little like outside of the norm and I really enjoy that that mindset so climbing especially back in the day I mean I've been climbing for like 18 years and uh, that far 18 years ago climbing wasn't nearly as popular as it is now so as a young person I saw climbing and was like oh there's not a lot of other people doing this so I want to do it you have a great team and, and support system how often would you go solo to any of these things I never got into soloing when I was young because I was always with a climbing team and it just never really occurred to me but I do occasionally climb easy solos like nothing harder than five nine and uh sometimes yeah i'll go out by myself sometimes i'll have music sometimes i won't and there's this sense of self-reliance and and to a degree of confidence in myself it's like all right i have the physical capability to do these climbs just gotta mentally keep it together Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. 
It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram at WhistlepigWhiskey. Let's go back to the high road a little bit. They gave you the call. They said, we'd love to shoot you doing this route. Did having cameras in play add any sort of increased, I wouldn't say difficulty, but awareness to the situation? No, having cameras there didn't affect it just because I was so in the zone and I was so comfortable with the climb already. I mean, I was fully focused on the climb itself. Mm. And uh, I mean, at this point, having cameras around is kind of the norm. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's been happening for a while now. Yeah, so I was like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Has a camera ever gotten in the way? Um, no, thankfully. Yeah. I know I have some friends who've had cameras, drones, especially get in the way sometimes, mm. but no, I haven't. Had drones are, I mean, what do you, where do you fall on drones uh, while you're climbing or on the mountains in general? I'm not a big fan of drones. If I'm working with someone, I'll be straight up and say, hey, like, I don't want a drone here. I know it gets like really amazing footage, but uh, it's it's distracting, not only for me, but for the people around me, for other climbers and wildlife. It's just like... Wildlife especially is where my consideration goes mm-hmm. to is just, I mean, that thing is, it's just so unnatural to yeah. have on the mountain, you know? Yeah, for sure. You just had the screening here in New York City. I wonder what it feels like to watch people watching you climb. Do you feel surprised by their reactions sometimes? When I watch other people watch me climb, like on the big screen, it's it makes me feel a little more scared in that moment than when I was actually experiencing it. I think because for me, I mean, again, I've gone through these processes and it feels so normal, but then it gives me perspective too because, you know, it's not normal for most people. So I'm just like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, these people are psyched and it's... It also, it, it makes me a little self-conscious, too, because I don't want people to think that I'm just, like, some risk-taking daredevil. Right. Um, so I always hope that the impression of the film leaves something to the audience that's a little more thoughtful. But, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool as well. What do you feel like watching other climbers climb? Free Solo, for example. What do you feel like watching that? Oh, God, watching Free Solo. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And I say that as a, an automatic response, but I also understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Honold did the same process. He worked a free rider on a rope for years beforehand. And so it's not something I would ever do for myself, but I get why he does it. And um, it's, not, it's actually not that crazy when I think about it because I'm like, well, he, he figured it out. Like he worked at it. It was just a lot of time and practice. And that's ultimately what it takes to do crazy things is just to put in the effort. I have two questions I end this thing with. The first one is if I handed you a plane ticket that could go anywhere and you could do anything, where would you go and what would you do? If I could go anywhere. Mm, that's a hard, that's a, tough question. a really tough question. I would honestly want to hand that plane ticket to someone else because I've had that opportunity and I've taken advantage of that opportunity a lot. And so any answer I give you um, would be something, you know, like a project or something that I want to do, but I would honestly want to give that plane ticket to someone who's never had that opportunity. That's a first. I like that. Well played. And the second one is when I say the perfect sunset, 
where are you? Perfect sunset on Yosemite on top of El Cap. I've seen it. It's just, and I love Yosemite so much. It has a lot of special meaning to me. So yeah, that's on. That's great. That's exactly what I did this summer. Nice. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Nina. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel. 